Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a conversation with Shaka King, the director of Judas and the Black Messiah, and Eugene Hernandez, Film at Lincoln Center's deputy executive director of programs. Fred Hampton, a young, charismatic activist, becomes chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, putting him directly in the crosshairs of the government, the FBI, and the Chicago police. But to destroy the revolution, the authorities are going to need a man on the inside. Enter William O'Neill. Judas and the Black Messiah stars Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons, Dominique Fishback, Ashton Sanders, and Martin Sheen. This Black History Month special event was organized by Film at Lincoln Center and Warner Brothers Pictures to provide cinema and art house audiences with an early preview of this timely and vital film, along with this extended conversation. Judas and the Black Messiah is now available on HBO Max. Let's continue to the talk. Hi, everyone. Eugene Hernandez here from Film at Lincoln Center. And thank you again for joining us for this nationwide art house sneak preview of Judas and the Black Messiah. Special thanks again to our friends at Warner Brothers and a reminder that Judas and the Black Messiah opens in theaters and on HBO Max on February 12th. Tell a friend. We are really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for sticking around. Um, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to sit down and have a discussion with the director, producer, and co-writer of Judas and the Black Messiah. Please join me in welcoming him, Shaka King. Shaka, it's nice to talk to you. Thank you for, um, well, thank you for this film, first of all. Thank you. And thank you for sharing it with us. It's, uh, you know, this, as I've said to the audience tuning in right now, it's really uh, meaningful and we're all grateful that you've shared this movie with us uh, for this for this nationwide art house sneak preview of the film. Um, it's a great opportunity for us to not only share this movie uh, in cities all around the country with art at art houses all around the country, but um, also to have a chance to talk with you about it. So thanks again. Thank you. Um, I think it was uh, probably seven or so, a little over seven years ago, we had you at Lincoln Center at our art house. I'm sorry we can't be there in person Hello. to do this. Uh, we did that. Um, really special evening, uh, special reading of Do the Right Thing. That was a really special night. And uh, yeah. I hope I hope that once thing, once the world reopens again, we can invite you back to Lincoln Center so we can sit down in the movie theater and talk to. properly. <laughs> um, look, we're gonna dig into the film. Uh, we'll dig into uh, a little bit more about you and, and introduce you to maybe folks in our audience who haven't seen your work. Um, so we'll talk about your background as well, but um, you know, just to just to kind of dive into it. Um, well, it's rare that I watch a film and then, um, you know, in the old days, I would rewind the tape and watch it again. In this case, I just pushed play one more time after I watched your movie. I went back and watched it again because there's so much to take in, um, not just the story, but what you're doing cinematically with uh, with this movie. So congratulations. And again, we're going to dig into some of that uh, tonight in this conversation. Um, do you... Uh, well, I wonder if you remember or you can you can share with our audience uh, when the name Fred Hampton meant something to you, when the Black Panthers meant something to you. Yeah. I've been thinking about that because um, I grew up hearing the name Fred Hampton and I was trying to place where and I remember one of the first people to utter his name was a guy I knew growing up named Brother Kafra. Uh, and he actually was a, I was part of a 
group called the Junior Engineers Club in fourth grade. I think like maybe third and fourth grade. And it was um, run by this guy named Brother Kafra, who was an Egyptologist and comedic scientist in Bed-Stuy. He had a brownstone. He was teaching young black kids trigonometry at very early age, hieroglyphics. Uh, and he was the first person I ever saw with an ankh. He used to carry like big metal locks. Um, and he mentioned Fred Hampton, and obviously he talked to us about black history as well, and African history. But he mentioned Fred Hampton once, or probably several times. Um, and the only thing I remember hearing about him was that he'd been, this is what I was told, was that he'd been shot a hundred times while lying asleep next to his pregnant wife uh, by the police. They, I didn't know it was the FBI initially. Um, and I remember the way he spoke about him was just that he was so brave and so fearless. And when I think about the people I heard talking about him growing up, it was always very masculine men. You know, he was a, he taught Tai Chi, he was a sensei, you know? And I think that a lot of um, black men in particular have always admired Fred Hampton for his bravery above all. Um, so that was, that was one of my first impressions of him as a child. So you, 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 grew, up in, you grew up in New York, uh, went to NYU, am I correct about that? Yeah, yeah, for, for grad school. Went to for, for grad school. Program. Yeah. When did you, do you remember when you realized or decided that film was a, was a pursuit for you or when that, was there a light bulb? Was there a specific film? Was there a group of films or artists? It was really the experience of, I, so I've been writing short stories since high school and I went to college uh, and my college didn't have a writing major, creative writing mm -hmm. major. So I just was like, fuck it, I'll take political science. Like, it's just, you know, something to do. I know how to do it. I can get B's and I can kind of coast. And I was doing that and uh, my junior year, my editor to this day, Kristen Sprague, who at the time was just my friend in college, he was a film major. And um, junior year is when you were allowed to start taking production courses. And he was having a blast and he was like, man, I just don't want really to get along with anybody in the class. You, I wish you could join, you know, partner up with me. And so I went to the, you know, I don't remember, Dean, I don't know who, and convinced him to allow me to double major in political science and filmmaking. And the plan was that I would take my prerequisite courses simultaneously while taking the production courses. But then I just, without telling them, dropped the prerequisites and just was taking the production courses. And it was that junior year that I just, I mean, we were, you know, shooting on super sick, no, on 16 black white reversal, editing, not even on a movieola. We had some other like really, really old school analog, you know, splicing with tape and, and it was just fun. And I was, it was an opportunity for me to get back into storytelling, which was something I discovered in high school that I loved. And uh, between my junior and senior year of college, I, I, was, I was like, this is what I want to do. Thanks for sharing that backstory and background uh, with us. Um, I don't know. I was thinking as I was watching the film. I told you I watched it. I watched it twice in the same night uh, a few weeks ago. Now it's actually maybe about a month ago now. Um, I knew it was in the same night. <laughs> yeah, I went back immediately. <laughs> I do that once in a while. Wow. Not not often. I have to say. So congratulations. Um, Thank you. But I think I think the reason I did, and and folks who are watching this now can 
you know, this is the night before it opens, so people can uh, can do the same tomorrow. Um, I was I was not only looking to you know learn more about and connect with the story of Fred Hampton and the world and story of the Black Panthers, but I was also really digging into the filmmaking. And I hope you don't mind the the homage that I'll that I'll make or the or the comment that I'll make in that. I, 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 when I watched the film the second time, um, I couldn't help but think of the work of another New York filmmaker, Scorsese, in terms of like the sort of uh, the genre, the style, the type of movie, the way you, you know, there's so many different ways to, to tell the story of a real life, a person from real life, a person from history. Um, and there's so many threads to, to this story and to, this, to these lives that you're exploring. But I don't know, something just provoked me into kind of making a connection to like um, some classic, like whether it's gangster or thriller um, stories. So I wonder if you could share with us sort of, um, as you were thinking about how to tell this story and digging into it now, we're flashing forward. You, you, you had heard about Hampton, you know, at a much earlier age, but as you're digging in to make this movie, um, how did you think about the sort of cinematic world that you would that you would develop and explore with this movie yeah yeah well you know i mean picking up on the scorsese influence i think is very uh, apt you know just because he has this ability to make tragedy and you know sort of heavier material incredibly entertaining and accessible and mm. quite frankly fun we weren't able to make this movie fun but the <laughs> goal was knowing the heaviness of the film that we weren't at all trying to shy away from um, and knowing that, you know, the challenge, in, the challenge in getting these ideas, Fred Hampton's ideas and, and a story like this into, you know, through the studio systems that we had to really make sure that the genre elements landed um, mm -hmm. and, that, and that it did feel like one film. It didn't feel like, you know, genre time and now serious movie time you know it had mm -hmm. to feel so um you know in terms of you know cinematic influences on the movie it was really my favorite movies are 70s crime dramas those are the movies that i watch mm. late at night to wind down you know and so there was definitely a desire on my part early to have this feel, have this movie feel of, inspired by that, not necessarily mm -hmm. of that same ilk, because, you know, once Sean and I started talking about what this movie could be, we both agreed that it was important to, that there was sort of contemporary style to it, but mm -hmm. we still wanted to retain sort of the stark reality of those 70s crime dramas um, and not get too slick and not be over stylized. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of style in the film, but you'll notice that the back half of the movie, the style disappears and it mm. gets quieter and it gets slower. And it's just a sort of a general kind of like Paul is supposed to gradually fall over the movie. Um, mm. And it's almost like that moment on a, nest, you know, on, a, on a roller coaster where like, you know, you've been flying around and flying around and you get to that part where you can, and it just slows down as you're going up and this dread kind of creeps and it's gonna happen, especially if you're someone who knows how this movie ends. You're right. really sitting there feeling, it's a horrifying feeling, you know, if you know what's coming. And then that assassination scene comes and 
It's just bang, 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 brutality, violence, and it's 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 cruel. And then you go to Deborah's face, and you have to really sit and reckon with what you just witnessed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, you know, constructing that wave, and what are going to be the influences that allow us to vacillate between all of these different tones and yet it feel uniform. For, you know, I thought of Fred Hampton, I read his words and I saw him speak. I just mm. was like, this guy's like one of the first MCs, you know? And so in yeah. a lot of ways, I was like, I want to shoot his speeches like concerts. And so what are the, what are the best concert docs? And I was watching a bunch of them and I saw one with Kings and there was one close up they utilized throughout the movie, but they really, it's really powerful when it's on Miriam Makiba. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be something that we're going to employ here. And we use it twice when I, it really plays in a real powerful way, um, at the high off the people speech in the middle of the yeah. film. Um, we pulled from that. We obviously pulled Malcolm X was a tremendous influence, you know? Um, and I mean, uh, no country for old men in terms mm. of the, the, the assassination scene and how the Coen brothers do such a great job of building suspense in that film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we wanted to definitely like take a page out of that book. It's interesting. So you talked about, you just talked about the, the heaviness and, and getting to the second half of the movie. Um, may, may I ask you to talk a little bit more about the first half then in setting up, um, we'll, 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 get to, we'll get to Eyes on the Prize in a moment because I think that's an important sort of gateway into this. But let's talk about once we're in, once we're beyond that, that opening moment, and then we're in, you're, you're establishing the visual world and, and you're using color, you're using camera movement. Um, while the movie certainly isn't, you know, as you said, it's not fun per se, but you're kind of establishing the, the, the connection between all these guys and the world and, and you know, the, 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 the spaces they inhabit together. Um, it feels like, I don't, I don't know, if, I, I don't know if playful is the right word, but that's the word that comes to mind in terms of just how you're like playing with and using kind of, um, yeah. like some visual sensibilities to kind of just like kind of bring the audience in right away, I think. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you want to set people up so that they sit forward in their chair and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a big movie from the, yeah. from the yeah. beginning, you know? So one of the things we wanted to do as much as possible, you know, it's part of the reason why, I mean, I hate exposition. So that's the number one reason why there's very little in it, but it's also because we wanted you to know as much as the people in the room at this, you know, at the same time, we never wanted you ahead of them. So when I discovered, or when really Will and I discovered that Bill O'Neill used an FBI badge to steal a car, we were like, it'd be really cool if the audience, who's gonna have seen the trailer by this point, they're gonna know that he's an FBI informant. Most people don't really know even what that means. It'd be kind of cool if the audience thinks when he flashes this FBI badge in this bar that he's an actual FBI agent. You know, so let's put him in, let's dress him like a G-man, you know? Let's have him even, and then you, then you start thinking, okay, well, you know, black kid in 1968, Chicago has never met an FBI agent. So how, what's, what's his reference for how an FBI agent behaves and talks? Movies, yeah, yeah. TV, right? Dragnet. 
So he's going to adopt those speech patterns. You know what I mean? He's going to, and it's fun. Like the way you're laughing, like we were like, I was like, this could, I was like, this is going to be fun. Like I'm going to have a lot of fun yeah. with this scene, you know? Yeah. And so it was like, also let's hide his face. You know, let's like really start this movie like classic noir, you know? Um, and so we, we kind of like Sean and I, we talked about it and we kind of built that opening. And then, you know, we go through the whole piece and I'm like, Okay, so we have this guy steal a car. You know what's gonna make people really sit forward? If a knife comes through the roof, you know? And so you're just thinking of ways to engage so that the whole point of, you know, using this, this genre element as a vessel was as Fred Hampton Jr. says, you wanna put the, the medicine in the applesauce, you know? And <laughs> yeah, so yeah. we just gave you up top a lot of applesauce so that you know, you were relaxed, not, you know, you're, you're on the edge of the seat, but you're relaxed, like, okay, I thought I was going to see a heavy movie that was going to be a history lesson, but actually, like, this is fun. And then mm -hmm. you start to, then, then you, we, we can indoctrinate you with these politics. Um, and, you know, we have such an amazing performer and performance in Daniel that Absolutely. that ends up being fun, too. Eyes on the Prize was something that um, I remember... I'm a lot older than you, I guess. I remember seeing it in college. No, I watched it too. I watched it in grade school. <laughs> you did? Okay. Okay. Uh -huh. good. So, uh -huh. so it was like, it was one of those seminal, not just documentaries, but, but what it was about and what it, what it invited me to learn more about at an age when I was like, you know, wanting to, you know, coming from a small town in California and moving to the big city, like wanting to, 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 to like challenge myself and, and learn and, and connect. So tell me, just maybe help us understand, I don't know if um, everybody in our audience will necessarily know Eyes on the Prize, but maybe uh, it, has such a, it has such a kind of cornerstone um, moment yeah. in, at the very beginning and it kind of lays the foundation for everything that's gonna happen after, right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah Eyes on the Prize um, was directed by Henry Hampton, and produced by Henry Hampton, it was directed by actually a number of directors. Um, and it was a docu-series, uh, the first Eyes on the Prize focused on the civil rights movement, second Eyes on the Prize focused on the black power movement. And uh, our film starts with um, an interview, an a recreation of an interview um, that uh, Eyes on the Prize 2 did with William O'Neill. And it's the only interview period, televised or print interview that William O'Neill ever did. And um, he was actually in witness protection uh, for a while. And I think someone, the story I've heard is that someone found out that he was, had left and he was in, back in Chicago. Um, but they didn't know if he was actually in Chicago, LA or New York or something like that. And he made a deal with them that if they guessed right, maybe, I think it was like, if they guessed right where he is, he'd sit down and meet with them. And he sat down, I heard that the story out here is that he didn't take his sunglasses off for like the first 30 minutes. He was clearly unnerved. Um, mm. And he, you know, they, they conducted this interview. And um, in the course of the interview, it's really fascinating because he refers to the FBI and the Black Panthers as we and us interchangeably, right? So that's like really just like shows that all these years later, mm. He's still um, confused as to where his, not necessarily his allegiance lies, because he made that decision very, very definitively early on. Um, but 
you can even sort of tell from his last answer that he hasn't, he hasn't made peace with what he's done. He can't fully own what he's done. Like, even though throughout the course of the interview, it's clear that he considers himself and, and, and almost a sentinel of the FBI. But he's also like, this was a terrible thing. He says he was manipulated. He didn't know that Fred Hampton was going to be assassinated. He claims he didn't drug him. He expresses guilt two times during the interview. He almost breaks down and cries. He's like, I can't, I can't, because they, the, the interviewer, Wisey, keeps wanting, getting, wanting to press him about the assassination and going into the apartment the next day and seeing the, the, the carnage everywhere. And he's just like, I can't do it, I can't do it. So he's bothered, it gets to him. And then he's asked the final question of the interview, which is one of his, I mean, it's a testament to, you know, the interview is just like brilliance. He asked him what he would tell his son. He had a one-year-old son at the time. What would he tell his son about what he did? And you see William O'Neill take a moment and not only lie to you, but above all, he's lying to himself in that moment, he's trying to convince himself that his deeds were just, but he, he can't, so he's not making any sense. I mean, literally what he says makes absolutely no sense, especially in the context of everything he said up until that moment. And you basically watch this guy unsuccessfully lie to himself, and then you find out that he killed himself the night that that series was broadcast on PBS. And so to me, even though there wasn't a lot of information out there about William O'Neill. It was kind of detective work that, you know, Will and I were doing when we were going through that transcript, trying to get clues as to who this person was and how they felt about what they'd done. Well, it's a really, it's a brilliant setup uh, to yeah. just, uh, thank you for the, for the detail on, on the different elements and, and, and components of the film. Um, and again, congratulations. A um, couple more questions. Um, sure. You know tonight's uh, tonight's event is, as I mentioned, it's uh, it's around the country at, at art house theaters all around the country. Um, art house theaters are not a place we've had the opportunity to be physically in for almost a year now. Um, it's hard. Um, so I was thinking about the pandemic, and as you're you know the pandemic is happening is 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 you know almost a year ago is is. Um, becoming a reality for all of us. Uh, how, did, uh, how did the pandemic impact uh, your making of the film, your finishing the film? Um, did it, it, we'll talk about the distribution of it later, but uh, how did it impact uh, just getting the movie finished? The post process was severely impacted um, mm. in ways that we over, ultimately were able to overcome, but in some ways that I think improved the movie, um, mm. specifically the music, because you know initially our plan, you know, Craig Harris, Mark Eichen, our two you know, co-composers. Um, the plan was for them and our music editor, Marvin Morris, to gather a bunch of jazz musicians in the studio and similar to what Miles Davis did with Elevated of the Gallows, mm. improvise a score and then notate that score off of these improvisations. And then the pandemic hit, so you couldn't get musicians in a room. And Craig lives in New York, Mark lives in LA. They'd never met until their first meeting in New York that I, you know, that I, I uh, set up. And so they basically were sending me MIDI jazz cues, mm. which is terrible. 
like, I mean, you can't make jazz that way. You can't <laughs> make jazz on a keyboard. Certainly not the jazz that we envisioned for this film. And so I was just like, okay, I, I reached out to Zach Cowley, music supervisor, who I met through Jesse Plemons. And, you know, we, he and I had spoken when I, when I was in Cleveland because Jesse had a mixtape that, that um, Zach had made from with music on it from the era to kind of help Jesse get into the character. And Jesse was like, I, you know, respectfully, like, I, I feel like you might want to hear this. And I, initially I was just like, I have a very clear sense of the music. Like, you know, yeah. that, that song you hear in the beginning, the inflated tear by Rasan Allen Kirk. I brought that into this, to the each studio pitch and played that for him. Cause I was like, I know what this is supposed to sound like, but yeah. now I'm, now I'm trying to edit remotely. I've got like, family stuff going on and I am so disorganized and I, as much knowledge as I have, I don't have a fourth of the knowledge that Zach has. And so, you know, pandemic hits and I need cues. I need just temp stuff. And I hit up Zach and he just starts sending me just for every scene. I sent him the scenes I was, I needed music for. And he just starts sending me like maybe six cues per scene. And they're just like really good. They're really, really working. And so I go back to Mark and Craig and I go, I know you guys thought you're gonna be composing a lot more music than this, but I think we're gonna to have to start going, like you can't compete with Duke Ellington, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and Eddie Gale, you know? And so they took that as a challenge, which was great. It like motivated them to try to kind of beat these jazz greats, you know? Simultaneously, I have another friend uh, named Quelle Chris, who is a, a hip hop producer and He's composed music on a couple of shorts I've done. And he's just like, honestly, just an artistic hero of mine. And I knew I wanted him to contribute music to the film, but I also knew that I was already, you know, I already had two composers, you know, one of whom and Craig had never done film composition. Mm. There was no way that I was going to be able to attach Quale as well. And so I just had him kind of sitting with me in sessions. You know, I just, because I knew I wanted to get a music in there and I, and I didn't know how, but I just had him, he'd sit in the editing bay with Chris and Sprague, my editor, myself. And he, he finally one day watched the cut and he said, you know, I really think, I love the silence in this film, but there's one scene that I think you could use something for. And I'm gonna mock something up. And he came back with this percussive, this, this percussive track that sounded absolutely nothing like anything else in the movie. And he plugged it in, he plugged it in right uh, during the, shootout with the Panthers and the cops at headquarters. And it worked amazing, but it didn't sound like anything at all that we had. Mark Isham hated it. He was like, this makes no <laughs> sense. We, we, you know, you guys, you've taken all these cues from us already. And, and like, now you're bringing this other guy and it doesn't, it's not cinematic. It sounds like we don't have a uniform sound. And he was, he was annoyed, but he, one weekend he was like, all right, you know, fuck it. I'm, give me the Sims to that song. Let me see if I can add some things to it to make it like, you know, work like a piece of action music. And he did, and it was, and he, it was amazing. And I was like, mm. oh my God, I would never would have imagined that we'd have this kind of music in this movie, but now we do. Let's think about other scenes where there's Panther police violence. And so I, I found some others and I said, okay, like when Jimmy Palmer gets shot, you know, um, or when uh, the Panthers go and meet the crowns, even though that's not you know, a violent scene, but we wanted something with a little bit more energy and, and just a little more edge. And so I had Quale and his partner, Quick Chris Keys, 
contribute percussive tracks to these moments. And then Mark would come and add stuff on top of them. And we started to find a uniform sound with that stuff, Craig adding, Craig, you know, it took, it was, it was, it was amazing because Craig, he'd never done film composition. And when he started out, he was making all these songs and he just wasn't getting any placements because him and, him and I mean, he was contributing the stuff marketing were doing, but they were initially really working separately a lot. But by the end, he was making score stuff and all that stuff was getting included in the movie. So it was a real like lemon, you know, lemons to lemonade kind of thing where we ended up with this score that I think is really unique. It doesn't sound like anything else. It feels of the air, but it's also contemporary. It's got mm-hmm. the action movie elements, all these things, this bullion base that would not exist were it not for the pandemic, you know? That's a fascinating, that's a great story. Thank you. It's a fascinating organic process and yeah. a distanced organic process that you just, <laughs> yeah. in retrospect, you can't imagine it happening like in a room over, you know, a few days or whatever. Like it, 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 it's fascinating. And the thing that's kind of crazy, I'm only realizing this now as I'm saying it to you is that that's how jazz music's made. <laughs> like we actually did make a jazz, like they actually did that. <laughs> Backed into it in, in a way you couldn't have predicted. You couldn't have predicted, you know, so much of it, but you couldn't have predicted how you'd, yeah. get, how you'd get to where you got in that relation, in, in relation yeah. to the music. That's wild. Yeah. That's wild. Look, I, I, I have to say, you know, we're in this pandemic, people are still distanced and, you know, the movie will be uh, in, in theaters on February 12th and also on HBO Max. Um, on the one hand is someone and, and all of us that, that are with art houses watching this right now. Uh, on the one hand, you know, we want to be in a theater watching this with family and friends with a big audience. On the other hand, part of me is just like kind of amped about the idea that the movie can be in theaters on the 12th and also dropped into living rooms all over the place on HBO Max at exactly the same moment. Um, so that we can all have this experience together in a way that we never could have or could have imagined. I don't know, what, how do you process that, the balance between sort of responding to how to get this movie out yeah. now um, and, and doing it in a whole different way, you know? I, I think for our movie, it's actually perfect because, you know, if you look at what the Black Panthers were trying to do, they were trying to provide people with access to information uh, and other things, but information being one of them that they felt they should have access to that they weren't getting access to. And that's really what this movie is and and the opportunity to get it to far more people than would have seen it otherwise. The fact that we have an audience that can't go to restaurants, can't go to museums, some people won't even go to parks, you know? So you have people who want, they're thirsty for content, they're thirsty for movies, especially in a year like this one where so many movies just didn't come out. We had way less movies come out than, than normal, you know? Yeah. And a lot of the movies that did come out were like movies from 2015 that they never released and they probably should never release in the first place, you know? <laughs> so it's like people are starving to watch stuff and people who might not have had any interest in checking a movie like this out in the past, you know, based on the trailer we've cut and the fact that they have nothing else to do might take a shot at watching a movie like this and get something out of it. So yeah. I, think it's, I think it's kind of perfect for our film. Well, look, Shaka King, there's so much more we could talk about. Uh, I think we've been talking for about a half hour now and 
Um, I'll take a rain check and we'll talk in a movie theater at some point down the line in New York City, I hope, and we can watch the film uh, with an audience there on a big screen uh, because that, that would be fun. That would be fun yeah. too. Um, but again, um, thanks to everyone who tuned in all around the country for this preview. Um, thank you to Shaka King and all of his collaborators for making this movie. And thank you for Shaka, thank you for spending time uh, to just talk with us today. It's really, really meaningful. Thank you, Jane.